morning and welcome to Women's Voices, Women's Wisdom on YesFM. You're with Kath Kovac. This morning we're talking with children's author Karen Hendricks. Karen hails from the Wollongong area and I've known Karen for some time since she attended an editing workshop with me and it's wonderful to have her on the show this morning. Karen, thanks for joining us this morning. Tell us, what are you working on at the moment? Morning, everyone. Um, at the moment I am self-publishing a local book. I live in Shell Harbour. And I've always wanted to write a book about our area um, for the children in Shell Harbour because often um, when people were heading down the New South Wales coast, they would go past Shell Harbour and no one would know where Shell Harbour was and we're sort of forgotten because we're in the middle of Wollongong and Kiama. And we're sort of becoming known now. Even our airport used to be under the umbrella of Wollongong, but it's in our municipality and our rates paying for it. So now people are sort of saying, oh, Shell Harbour's beautiful. We didn't know it was here. But I sort of wanted it for the community and for the kids so that they can go, look where I live and look how lucky I am and have gratitude for the place that we live in because it's beautiful Mm. and come together as a community like we're Shell Harbour kids and we're cool, sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah, so what do you love about living in Shell Harbour then? I like being near the ocean. I like the energy of the ocean and I feel the ocean affects your moods and I think the ocean really um, makes you happy. Like a sunrise, I know out in Yass because my daughter lives just the views over the land with the sun setting are stunning out there. It's a similar sort of thing with the ocean. Mm, I agree. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. Yeah. You're lucky, I guess, to have it regularly, whereas out here in Yas, you know, it's a two-and-a-half-hour drive, really, to the closest beach. Uh, yeah. So it's not something you do every day, but I think really that helps, well, me, it helps me appreciate it more that I can only go there occasionally and not every day. I was at um, Shell Harbour area just on the weekend at Kayama and that was beautiful. The caravan park is literally right on the beach. Like you just have to walk 20 metres and you're on the beach, little beach too. And I actually, although it was a fizzer because I went, I actually got up early in the morning. Well, I had no choice because I was sleeping outside the van since I couldn't fit inside it, um, since somebody else was inside the van. (laughs) And I thought, oh, well, it's five o'clock in the morning. I have to get up. And so I went to the beach and, and just waited for the sun. And it was so disappointing. It was a cloudy morning and there was literally like the tiniest bit of yellow behind the cloud and that was it. And I was like, oh. (laughs) But I have seen lovely ones, of course. (laughs) The ones here are spectacular. But what I love about Yas, because my daughter lives in Yas, is you are connected more to the land. There, um, with the space around you, um, and the big skies, and then yeah, mm. just I think in Australia we're really lucky with our night skies and our clean air and our big blue sky during the day. I don't think you realise how special they are until you travel mm. and you go overseas and you go, oh, where's their blue sky or where are the stars? Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I just like feeling connected that way to 
I don't know, like the universe. And I don't know. I think it grounds you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The 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 night sky, particularly. I mean, even in Kiama. Yeah. You know, when I stayed there, I couldn't see hardly any stars. Whereas out here, yeah. where I live, out in Dalton, you know, there's only a few streetlights. And if I just walk out of the way of the streetlight, then I can look up and I can just see everything. And the Milky Way looks incredible yeah. and the dark emu up in the sky and um, the warrior, which I've only just learned about. Do you know about the warrior? No. Oh, so, so if people... Um, aren't sure listening what I'm talking about because not everyone realizes this. So you have the Milky Way. Everyone knows mm-hmm. the Milky Way. And then in between the Milky Way, the stars is in the negative space, in the black space where we cannot see stars is a big shape that Aboriginal people have called the dark emu and its head is near the milk, um, the Southern Cross. So to the left oh. and the left and above the Southern Cross is the head of the emu in the black space. And if you look to the left then, from there, you see the emu's body. It's very big. It's huge. It takes up like half the Milky Way, right? And at different times of the year, depending on the different star constellations, the emu body will change shape uh, as the stars mm-hmm. come and go. And so <clears throat> so the indigenous people would look at the dark emu and would know, okay, well, um, during summer, look, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of this. So um, forgive me, anyone listening who I've got it wrong, but I understand that um, at one stage of the year, the emu will will be looking in a way that indicates that um, it's laying an egg. And so the people would know traditionally, you know, that's the time of the year where they could go out and harvest emu eggs, for instance. And at another time of the year, it would be um, uh, nesting or, or whatever. Whatever the life cycle of the emu is, ref- in, of the actual emu, yeah, is reflected yeah. in the dark emu in the sky. And so, of course, when the emu's laying eggs, then the, the turtles are laying eggs or whatever it is and, and something's ready for harvest and all that stuff. So all that knowledge, all that incredible knowledge stored in the seasons and in the sky and in the waters and in the lands. Um, and actually when I – this is such a huge segue from where we started, but what I yeah. understood <laughs> is as, as a child – I mean, I, you know, we didn't learn hardly any Indigenous history in school anyway, and they still hardly do, if you ask me. We only learnt from Captain Cook on, you know. And, but what I learnt yeah. was that the people were taken from their lands and put in these other places where they were given food and water and whatever. And I never, as a child, and not understanding at all, I, I was like, oh, well, that's sad, but at least they had somewhere to live and, you know, all that kind of thing. And I never understood that actual connection to where they were from. I was like, well, as long as they live somewhere in the country, it doesn't matter, does it? This is the ignorance of a child and many adults. <laughs> and um, so it was when I learnt about the fact that, you know, they're so closely connected country that all those signs and symbols in the stars and the waters and the land tell them where is the food source at which particular time and where they can safely go and where they can't and where they'll find water and all that stuff. So, of course, when you take a group of people who are so connected to their land that they know all that stuff about it and you take them to a mission a thousand miles away where they don't know the land, they don't know the stories, they don't know where the food is, they don't know anything about that land particularly, or at least, you know, they can only learn from the people who are there. Um, and so no wonder, no wonder they were disconnected and completely messed up because they don't have that, they really need that connection because they are so physically, mentally and everything connected to the country. So, um, yeah. which is an amazing thing and that, and that we don't have, like we, you know, non-Indigenous people have oh, no clue of what this could possibly feel like. We don't have the knowledge, but we do have the connection just as strong um, because I think one in two Australians is 
born overseas or has a parent or a grandparent born overseas. Mm -hmm. And I think if you, like the first generation that come, and even the subsequent generation, second and whatever, they have a connection to the land their heritage comes from, which is sort of how home, my picture book came about because of my Oma and we could all feel her strong loss and homesickness for her snowy mountain village and the loss of the family home there. Um, we didn't understand. She never told us what happened, um, but I always had that feeling and then of that loss and we could all feel that deep sadness because she had such a connection to where she was born and the little village she grew up in and where her family had been. That um, when they were forced to leave, which I didn't know they were forced to leave until I wrote the story, um, and there was no hope of going back, you hold that deep sadness forever and then further generations feel it. Too. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're all connected to place through family and time and relationships, and you can even be very connected to a place when you visit and you fall in love with it and you holiday there every year. Or, well, now I'm connected to yes because my daughter's chosen to live there and she's just had a baby. So even though I live here, I'm also connected there. It's sort of a bit like a spider web, isn't it? Oh, How you connect yeah. different places. And I'm now connected to um, the Czech Republic and a couple of hours from Prague is – I discovered the little village my Oma was born in and I went there. And through riding home, I discovered that my Oma was a Sudeten German refugee or a Bohemian German refugee. And at the end of World War Two, anybody who had Germanic heritage in Czech, Poland or Hungary due to the Benz Treaty that was signed in Potsdam, they were told they had to leave their homes, never return, and they could only take their clothing and nothing valuable and what they could carry. But it also meant they could never return to that country or visit that house or ever see it again until recently, I think 2000 and I don't know, 15 or 16 or something. And only recently you're allowed to go back, but you cannot make claim on property or anything. And I never, I just assumed my mum was born um, right at the end of the war that it would, she was born in Germany, but she was actually born in the Czech Republic in the little village where my Oma was born and my great Oma and my great-grandfather was locked up in Dachau for opposing Hitler. So when they got the knock on the door to leave, it was my mum, my Oma. My mum was a new baby, my Oma, my great Oma. And they had to walk from the mountains back into Germany. But I didn't know any of this. I just created my story. It was about losing a home, finding a new one, and not forgetting the one you lost. 
and the new home obviously was Australia. Um, but the gift came from writing the story and then um, researching and finding things out because my mum actually, just before the book was going to be published, said, oh, I was born in the village, that happened to me. So that's how I found out because when you have trauma, you don't, often you don't talk about it, you hide it Mm -hmm. to protect. And, um, yeah, it's just really, really interesting. But I vowed that I would find the house after I wrote the book and most of the houses have been removed or any houses that sheltered um, Nazis or whatever, they were destroyed. But the funny thing is, um, when I went, just in June, July, we hired a driver and we went from Prague and Hannah was the driver and she said, Karen, I'm confident with all the information you've given me. I know the village. We will find the house. And I was a bit like, because my mum had said, you won't find it. Um, it'll be too hard. Uh and we were driving and then Hannah said, oh, we're entering the village soon. Keep your eyes out. And it's only very small and there's not many houses. And we saw this beautiful one. And my husband goes, oh, that's the house. And Hannah and Robert, who was driving, they stopped the car. And they went, that's it. It matches. I had this one little postcard of the village and it had the house. Mm. And it goes, they match, it matches exactly. Look how beautiful it is, Karen. It's renovated. And due to the laws there, you can't step on someone's property. You'd be arrested. So we could only look from the footpath, but we looked and we took photos and we did the main street. And I kept saying, something's not right. This is Yes FM 100.3, bringing you the best of everything. And they're going, what do you mean? And I said, well, I can't remember this creek. And I'm sure. The house was on a hill, and I know the number, and the number doesn't match. And Hannah said, oh, when they changed the village name and eradicated anything German, they changed the numbers. And I'm going, oh, are you sure? And she said, now we're going to go to the mayor, and we're going to check. So we went back to the mayor, and, oh, we just went in this little old building, up these wooden stairs, knocked on this wooden door, and it was like being back in the 1950s or something. Mm-hmm. You know, the old wooden desks and the old metal filing cabinets and a couple of ladies sitting in there. And then Hannah goes, oh, he's so lucky the mayor's in today. He doesn't usually work every day. So we got to meet the mayor and they all got excited that I was from Australia. And they started pulling out the records. And they said, and I couldn't think. They're going, what was your grandmother's name? And I went blank. Mm-hmm. It was Emmy. And um, anyway, they looked up the family name and they said, yes, your family's been in, had been in the village 106 years. Wow. And originally there were eight houses that the Bolm family had owned. So there were more family members. And so they'd all been asked to leave. And then the mayor said, there are two houses that your family owns that are still standing. And then he showed us the little chapel next door. They'd spent 180000 Australian restoring the altar. It was it was just one of those beautiful little village chapels. Mm. It had the little Christmas tree thing in the corner and 
you know, it was just stunning. And he unlocked the door and he let us in. And it was the one that my grandmother had made her first Holy Communion in. Oh, wow. (laughs) And, oh, it was just mind-blowing. And then we went back to the village because we said we're going to find the second house. And we went past the first one. And just as it swept around the bend, I saw the letterbox, 126. I said, that's the number. Mm. And we looked up that driveway and there was the other house, exactly same style as the other one. And that was the house that my mum had been born in. Wow. So we took photos and the other, the pink one, which was just before it, um, was the other family member house. So I found both and they were right, they're the only two in that style mm. and they were the ones owned by my family. <laughs> That's amazing. And so those houses, um, a couple of hundred years up. old or how old were yeah. the houses? Yeah, they'd be, I don't know exactly, but yeah, they're well over a hundred years old. And we saw the schoolhouse that Omar went to, but it's now a residence. It was just up on the hill, but, you know, Hannah goes, that's it was a schoolhouse. And it was really, yeah, moving. And now I know I'm sort of connected there, even though I'm here. Yeah. No, I totally understand what you mean because I had a similar experience last year when I went to Croatia. Uh, but before, I, and I yeah. just want to draw some parallels there. But just before that, I wanted to mention when you said that you had written this story about losing yeah. your home and finding a new one, and what have yeah. you. Was that written from the perspective of a child or an animal or an it, adult? It's a girl, a young girl, about ten. Right. And that's my mum came here when she was nine or ten. Did you know um, that? I knew mum came here at about nine or ten. But you weren't thinking um, about her when you wrote the book? No, I was channeling that age because I like writing from that age myself. Yep, yep. Um, and I just made her an only child. Uh-huh. Um, and I just had that they lived in a snowy mountain village and they had to leave. And as it evolved, because I worked on it for over four years, Somehow my mum had said the village I came from was Wunschendorf. And when I went to find anything about Wunschendorf, it's totally, you can't find anything. It doesn't exist. Um, it's like it's been totally eradicated mm. because once um, the Czech Republic owned that, they wiped out any existence that the German people of Germanic heritage had been there. They even destroyed the graveyards, everything. Everything's removed. Wow. No names, no nothing. Um, so when I went, but there's no information about it. And even if you try and find information about um, Bohemian or Sudeten Germans, it's covered up because how can you have sympathy for any German people after what happened? That's the sort of feeling I yeah. get with World War Two. Yep. So there's going to be no sympathy for anybody. And they were, like, run over by tanks when they were expelled. They were made to walk. Some were hung from the lampposts. I found all this out through really digging. Mm. Um, But it's not talked about. It's not known. Um, But I did find it's funny how a story will take you on a journey 
that you would never imagine you'll go on. There was a girl called Sophie Dixon, and where I found a lot of my information was, even though the village no longer existed and you couldn't find anything about it, this girl had written a thesis. She's from the UK, and she's a visual media artist, and she tells stories through all sorts of mediums, including film, and then she uses them on a website and she uses words and images and all sorts of things. And for her thesis, she had recreated a site about the village. And that's where I found out that since 2016 or something, the survivors, anybody who's connected like me, I... Every year there's a group who have a connection to that village that don't live in Czech go every June together just to visit there because they're connected to there through either being born at the end of the war there and they're still alive or through their parents or their grandparents. Mm, And they just go and visit. And she also had... um, photos of items or or photos or images of some of the houses where nature was claiming them back. Yeah. Um, and, like, all sorts of things like that. And, like, there's an image of my um, great-grandfather on there because he was a deputy mayor. Hmm. Wow. And stuff like that. And it's all – so I got the feeling and more information for the story from an online site. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. So what I yeah. what I was going to, to sort of say about that is that so I've been reading this book called Living in a Mindful Universe and it's written by a neuroscientist from America. It's his second book and the first one was about a near death experience that he had while he was in a coma for five days. And yeah. in that coma he travelled to all sorts of weird and wonderful places and he said he discovered peace and harmony and, and people who had passed before him and all the things that people talk about in their experiences, but his was different because um his brain was not actually functioning at that time. So they thought he was dead. He had some virus yeah. or other and he had a top neurosurgeon because he was a neurosurgeon, right? So he had top neurosurgeon buddies and they're all trying to save him and they're analyzing this, that and the other thing. And they thought he was brain dead. And then five days later, he said, as he described it later, he felt his son say, dad, I need you. I need you to come back. And so he did. And when he woke up, they thought he was going to be, you know, like a vegetable, basically. Yeah. He wasn't. He regained full capacity and even more. And he retained the memory, every memory of this experience. And, he, as a neuroscientist earlier, would not really believe people who said this sort of thing. He'd be just like, yeah, they would just all, they just write it off as the brain being like, you know, the brain on drugs almost type of thing. Like people think they have a near death experience. Hallucinating. Yeah, exactly. But then, but he, they basically proved because of all the areas of his brain that were shut off during this coma, they proved that that was impossible. And the only explanation for what he was saying is that it was true is that he actually went to yeah. heaven or whatever this place was. So he, since then, has been on a mission to educate other neuroscientists in the medical community about the fact that they need to listen to people who have near-death experiences and not just write them off. Anyway, so that's just by way of introduction. In his second book, Living in a Mindful Universe, he talks about how we're all connected and how everything in the universe is connected. And so what he says, because humans have this concept called time, which we've sort of invented, right, you know, to keep track yeah. of your day and whatever, so that yeah. it's not really a thing. 
in the universe consciousness essence itself, time is not actually a thing because everything is everywhere and every once, like it's all at the same time. Everything's at the yeah. same time. Everything's at the same place. It's just that we put filters on it the way that we experience the world. So animals yep. or, or plants or other beings or what have you, they experience this universe in different ways than we do. So what he says yep. is, and, and now I'm sort of getting to the point, <laughs> is that um, he says that so things happen and you're not really sure why they happen. So, for instance, you wrote that book and you hadn't yeah. talked to your mum about it really, and you didn't know a lot of the information and whatever. And then no. af- after yeah. you read the bo- after you'd written the book, if if I understand correctly, then your mum read the book, and then she said that happened to me. Yeah, about a week before publication. Yeah, she sort of said, "What's this book?" Because she was very protective of her mum too, um, and her grandmother. What's this book you've written? And I was so scared. Anyway, she read it, and she goes. Yes, it's fine. <laughs> She's lucky. <laughs> um, and she just said, oh, and it got me going. It was sort of just before it was going to be printed or whatever. She said, girls in the village didn't have, the girl had straight hair like a bob. They had plaits. Uh-huh. That needs to be changed. I thought, oh, my God. Oh. I don't know if the illustrator can change. But anyway, I got on to my publisher, Jennifer Sharp, and I said, is it any way possible? The girl's hair can be changed. And luckily, oh, it could. So, yeah, it was just, she, it had to have the right look as yeah. well for my mum. Yeah, well, it's, um, and it's just amazing <clears throat> so, that, so that you had all these ideas about this girl losing her home and everything, and you were not really probably aware consciously where they came from. You just had the idea. And yeah. so, but the fact that it actually happened to your mum years before, that, yeah. That event is imprinted in her, like, her energy field, right? Like, as everything that ever happens to us stays in our energy field, like everything's memories or anything that's ever happened, everything we've done always stays with us, but we have to filter it all out because it's too much information, right? So we can't cope, yeah. we can't function if we remember every single thing that we did because that would be mad. So we remember selectively. So anyway, that happened and your mum hadn't even talked to it, but even though she had never talked to you about it, it's still there, it still happened and you were in her sphere in like you guys interact so you somehow have picked up on this story without realizing of from her even though it happened years before and now you'd written this book and imagine if you hadn't even showed your mum that book or if your mum had died and or something yeah you know you would never have realized that connection and so it's almost like she from her experience unknowingly transmitted that to you so that you now can have this experience of going back and finding out for yourself and getting that connection um and that's what he talks about in this book. Like all everything is connected and things happen and you don't know the reason why, but it'll become clear later. And that's because there is no time, really. It's yeah. everything is happening at once. So it's fascinating. Like I just found it so fascinating. I was also I really loved my grandmother. And I have a tap she, she used to do tapestries like cross stitches and they were always of the mountains and the snow and the little houses like that are there. And I have one of hers on the wall and I have a heart locket that is from the village and is a character in the book. Wow. And so my Oma was given it by her mother and then she gave it to my mum and then my mum gave it to me and so it's a character in the book. 
and it speaks and it guides and it gives strength and hope and things like that. The locket does this. Yeah. Right. So it's also you can be connected to objects from places, yes. but I think I think it's more a generational connection because my sister feels it too. Mm. Yeah. Um, that connection to that place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So I think it, the connection and the story came about through the energy that my Oma gave as well because mm. um, she really, really missed those mountains. And I think, you know, she was sad to never see them again and never be able to – she was an only child – to never be able to go back to that house. Yeah, and it really broke my mum when they came to Australia because the one person that had to leave behind was my Oma's mother, which was my mum's grandmother. Um, she didn't want to go to Australia. She was too old, she thought. She wanted to stay in East Germany. Um, so, and my Oma was an only child, so when my Oma came to Australia, that left her mother alone. Mm. You know, my mum wrote to her until she died. My mum was raised by her for the first four years of her life um, because of the war and what happened. Mm -hmm. So my mum really was bonded to her like you would to your mum. Yeah. So I think my mum never got over that. And, yeah, it's funny how things that happen that are so traumatic, that emotional feeling that of trauma that people have suffered, even though they've never talked about it, it passes on to generations. Oh, yeah, it does, absolutely. And there's a scientific basis for that that they've proven. Um, I just... Uh Sorry, I meant to say occasionally that we're listening to Yas FM, but I've been so intent on your story, Karen. Uh, so on Yas yeah. FM uh, with Kath on Women's Voices, Women's Wisdom, I've been speaking with Karen Hendricks, a children's author, if you've tuned in halfway through. And Karen's been talking about her journey writing a children's book about a you know losing your your place your home and having to go somewhere else and then found um, parallels when it was uh, just before it was published with her mum saying that was. Her mum saying that's what happened to her as a child in, in uh, having yeah. to be forced to go to East Germany from um, the Czech Republic. Is it? Yeah. Is that the country? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so not it's, far from Prague. Not far from yeah. Prague. Yeah. So that's amazing. Um, so just a couple of things I wanted to say. One was so I started off this show saying about how the indigenous people had such a massive connection to place that they w it ruined them when they were taken off and put on a mission. Whereas I think someone these days we move homes all the time; it's no big deal. But you are right that we also have a connection to land. I don't think it's of the same level um, of like yeah. the indigenous knowledge having to you know survive no, we off the don't land. Have we don't knowledge. have that, but we do have. And you're right, the, the connection to place. So one thing I just wanted to to say from before was that. Like I went to Croatia last year where my father's family, my father was from and it was the first time I'd been there and uh, I discovered all these cousins that I never knew I had and lots of, they all had children 
you know, and so I had second cousins or third cousins or whatever you want. All and I found I met like fifty relatives, and I, it was overwhelming. I loved it. It was overwhelming. I broke down quite a few times, and because I actually could feel this thing, I could actually feel this physical, like feeling of connection, and I'd never had it in my life because when I grew up down near Albury in like Riverina. So my dad was Croatian, mm-hmm. my mum is Australian, um, like going back to the third fleet or something. And so we, I always kind of felt like I didn't fit, you know, like I got, I got teased at school for, you know, being a wog or having a, you know, woggy name or, yeah. you know, greasy brown skin or whatever. And because it was a very local rural farm area, right, we were the only ones with yeah. an unusual name yeah. and got teased through school for that and then... But I never felt Croatian. I didn't understand what the point, what they were going on about, why they were teasing me, because they're like, go back where you come from. I'm like, well, I was born in Albury. We, we go back to Albury. <laughs> and I never got it. You know, I was a bit dim, I suppose. And then later on, I never, we used to go visit my relatives in Canberra. A lot of my dad's sisters and cousins came to Canberra. So I used to go, yeah. we, we would visit them at, you know, occasionally for weddings, mostly for weddings and funerals, but occasionally around school holiday times. And I never felt connected particularly to them either because it was, for me, it was so foreign because they kept the Croatian traditions and everything. I mean, my aunts and uncles did learn English, but some of them were not, they didn't have perfect English by any means, but you know, that you could understand them. Whereas the younger ones all learned English. But I, with the customs and the, and, and the, especially the religion, because they're very Roman Catholic, you know, heavy and, um, I'm not religious. And so I found that a bit hard to, I couldn't, yeah. you know, compute and I, and, it was so funny. And then um, my aunt, one of my aunts, my youngest aunt, who lives in Germany, um, because after the war in Croatia, in, you know, in, in Croatia in the 90s, they moved to Germany because um, their house yeah. got wrecked or whatever. And um, yeah. so she came to Australia for a quick little holiday and she came out to my place in Dalton for a day. And so I'd never met her. She doesn't speak any English. She speaks only Croatian and German. I don't speak any Croatian really, and I learnt high school German, but that was so long ago. So we couldn't really talk. Yeah. But as soon as I met her, I'm like, oh my God, I actually get you. Like, I feel you. And I, yeah. I mean, I loved my other aunts dearly, but I never had the same connection with them as I did with her. She was the same kind of person as me. And, um, and, you know, we only hung out for that one day. And this was about 17 years ago because I was pregnant at the time. And then. Yeah. I then saw her last year when I went back to Croatia or I went to a wedding and I met my auntie Anna there and she still doesn't speak English and I still don't speak Croatian or German. So we still couldn't really talk, <laughs> but there were plenty of people there to translate. And the connection with her, even though I'd only met her once for a few hours, it, unbelievable, unbelievable. And so I'm going yeah. back again this month or oh, in September, I'm going back to Croatia for a couple of months by myself without family. <laughs> and I'm going to go visit all my family over there. And I'm going to fly to Germany and I'm going to go and stay with my aunt for three days. Um, and her daughter lives there and she speaks English. So that's okay. And I'm looking forward yeah. to it so much because even with those two small connections, I felt so much uh, and I understood. And the other thing was that when I got there and I met my relatives and I sat around dinner tables with them and heard them laughing and talking loudly and drinking and eating and blah, 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 and interrupting each other and sounding like they were arguing, but they weren't because they were just laughing. And I didn't get mostly what they were talking about, but I got the the vibe, you know, 
And I loved it. Yeah. And I'm like, this is how I fit. Like, because here I was always like the loudest one or the noisiest one or I talk too much or whatever it was, you know, or I interrupted or blah, blah. And, and I was like, oh, you know, I was always the old one out. And over there I'm like, oh, my God, I fit in so easily. In fact, I am like the quiet little mouse in the corner. <laughs> Yeah. In comparison yeah. to them. <laughs> and yeah. it's amazing. Even like Hannah, who was our driver, I'd been talking to her before we went over and, you know, saying, you know, this is where the area is. Do you think you know where? And this is the name of the village now. And do you think you can find it? And we sort of, it was like she was a family member when she picked me up. And mm. she's like, I'm so for you, she was beside herself with excitement, and she actually messaged me yesterday, and she said, "I really miss you, Karen." Well, and I was like, "Oh my God, I've got!" And I had a message yesterday about the Matildas. This was oh, they lost. I was so hoping they'd get through. Um, from family in Germany as well, we watched the Matildas. We so hoped they'd get through. <laughs> How lovely. Oh, and it was two messages from Europe in one morning. I was like, "How does that work?" <laughs> it's great. I found, yeah, and I found even not even just my relatives, but everyone in Europe where we travelled was so like that. They're so ready to help you, and as soon as they know that you're not like, as soon as they know that you're a traveller or a tourist, they just will do anything for you. And I sometimes feel that Australia falls down in that respect. Um, I mean, personally, obviously, a lot of people will help people who travel here, but also. Generally, I don't think it's this. I just don't think it's the same vibe. Whether Australia is so big, and you just don't know anyone who's a tourist or not, because Australia is so multicultural, you're not going to know anyone walking yeah. in the street lives here I, or not. Yeah. Whereas in a country like, you know, in another country that, where you look very unfamiliar, it's obvious to people that you're a visitor, right? So maybe that's part of it as well. But yeah, um, the funny thing is when I'm walking around over there. I always just thought I looked Australian. I didn't think anything any different. But when I'm over there, I look like them until I open my mouth. <laughs> and then the illusion falls away. I just think you're one of them. But I think the yep. way our culture is and we're so spread out and people have to travel for work and things, I think we're just busy. Yeah, we have a lot of time travelling. Mm. And I think young generations, um, it's hard for them, like – they both have to work so hard to, you know, keep a roof over their yeah. heads and if they have family. Yeah. I mean, they don't have that. They're very compassionate and want to help, yeah. but their time yeah. is constrained. And, and their energy. I mean, you only have a certain amount of energy, energy, energy to give. It's just in survival, yeah. you know, yeah. going to work, getting the food, doing yeah. whatever. It's yeah. really hard. Yeah, it's not a slow pace and, and that I think we really miss something. And because yeah. we are all travelling and commuting and we're not just living and working in our small communities generally, yeah. you know, that sense of connection um, can be hard to build up as well. But like when yeah. we left our family over there last year and we went to drive off to do some scenic stuff ourselves, I could feel it. Like I could, I could, I was so yeah. quite upset to leave them and I could feel in my body something like some type of energy or vibration or some physical tangible feeling of connection with these people that I was leaving behind and it was like oh my god I've only been here for yeah. six days and I feel like this can I cannot even possibly begin to imagine what it must feel like to be in that country in those communities and then be forced to leave like your family was yeah. and like my family was 
and so many yeah. families were forced to leave and come here to a country or to Canada or wherever, you know, many, many people ended up in Canada or Australia. Uh, my dad chose Australia. And, you know, to come so far away to such a place which has, is vast yeah. and, and not, and has those big skies and has all that space. And it must just have been so overwhelming for, for so many people. Like, I can't even fathom. I think there's another, several books in that, Karen. It was isolating because we didn't have, like in Europe, there's so much about a village. Yeah. And everyone knows everybody. Yes. We're, you know, when you came out here after the war, you, you built your house and then slowly more houses built around you and then the community established. It wasn't there, mm. Mm. you know, when you started off. But it's funny, when I left the village as we are leaving it, I was sort of like, I don't, I'm going to cry now. Yeah. <laughs> I was sort of like, I don't want to leave. Mm-hmm. I'm connected here. Like somehow I must I feel like I have to go back not to live there because I love Australia and I love being an Australian but I am connected there and the mayor said to me that I'm one of them in Czech and I said yes I am I'm one of you and he was smiling and he gave me the biggest hug and kiss. <laughs> you're one of us. You're one of us. He kept saying in Czech and Hannah was translating. And I was like, oh, my God. I wasn't ex- I was expecting just to see a house. I wasn't yep. expecting to try and find a house, not all this other emotional connecting stuff. Yeah, it's incredible what happens when you travel and especially when you go somewhere with a connection. So I'm speaking on Yas FM to Karen Hendricks, children's author. We're almost at the end of our time, unfortunately. Karen, can you believe yeah. it's 7 to 11? Um, can you – so do you speak any of the language or no? No, not at all. When we were here, the rule was you're Australian. Yeah. This country's giving you the chance, giving them the chance to be here and have a new prosperous yeah, start life. again. Very important to be Australian and speak English and and then but we did our like my grandparents always did Christmas on Christmas Eve and my Oma made the cakes and so you got little feelings of it but you were first and foremost always Australian. Yes, I mean that's how we grew up as well. So I mean we never learnt Croatian. I think it's also a matter of dad being the Croatian and mum the Australian. If it was the other way around, yeah. I feel we probably would have learnt Croatian as we went up. I grew up, but my dad, I mean, he was a bricklayer. He was left the house before we got out of bed, off to work. He'd come home <laughs> late just before dinner. He'd mess around in the vegetable garden for a while. He'd come in and he'd have dinner. Um, he'd go and, you know, have a beer and lie on the couch and fall asleep in front of the telly. So when could he teach his Croatian, you know? Like, and, um, and my mum it was never going to happen. Was come as it came as a child and she was married to my dad who is um, of Irish descent and from the Southern Highlands, and he's an Aussie, true blue, through and through. So mum just adapted to dad. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, so she so – did it, she yeah. speak Czech, though, your mum? No, German. She could speak oh, sorry, German. German. Right. She, can, she remembers it from a child. Uh-huh. She gets embarrassed. She goes, I only speak child German, but <laughs> if you went over there, she could she can do it. Isn't that she right? can do it. Yeah, sorry. I said Deutsch, ki- yes. Kinder Kinder Deutsch. Child yeah, German. Kinder Deutsch. I remember some <laughs> of my four years of German. Mrs. Frau Lubke would be um I don't even know if she's still alive, but she'd probably be rolling in her grave if she heard me 
<laughs> saying very poor German pronunciation. Um, but yeah, after four years of German, I felt like I still only learnt the same stuff that we learnt in year seven. We just learnt it like every year, the same stuff. <laughs> Just repeat. So hopefully it yeah. will be. Oh, look, I can recite the textbook, honestly. I can. Like, was ist das? Das ist ein Mann. Was mag der Mann? Der Mann war Schweifer. Right? Like, I just. Well, that's pretty good. It is, but that's just a memory of the book. And, and I can do that for every passage in the book because we just did it so many times. But we were terrible. Like, you know, we were teenagers in the 80s and we were mucking up. And me and my friends used to yes. just be idiots in the class all the time. And. I mean, we were just horrible and and the teacher yeah. wasn't, you know, we didn't like her and she didn't like us and fair because we were horrible. So how can you teach kids who are just, you know, being jerks and don't want to learn? So amazing that and you actually learned see, anything. You wouldn't have seen a reason to learn it. No. What was there a reason for you? We're in a country that's fast. Everyone speaks yes, English. exactly. It's not like you can go on the train to another country and you're there in no. an hour or half an no. hour. So you need like English you everywhere. Mm. Yeah. So well, we, yeah. We, we are. We. It was just. Well, this is it. We're English. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. But if in Europe they are just so lucky that they can experience so much, mm, so much different so culture. Easily. Yeah, it's incredible, yeah. isn't it? And even, even not even. <laughs> not even going from one country to another, but literally just going from one village to another can have yeah. very different um, culture and aspects. And it's just fascinating that there's so many villages so close together and you can just literally walk or ride your bike between them and they'll be different yeah. and they'll each have their own specialty of their wine or their cheese or their prosciutto or their whatever. And they're still very much into making all their own stuff, all the people in the country. I mean, obviously there's a lot of people in the city, yeah. but all my relatives are farmers, you know, and all of them. One of them's a, yeah. like, one of them is a judge and he's like a very rich and well off. I'm like, well, I didn't know I had any very rich relatives, but yeah, he's my oldest <laughs> cousin. He's 70 now and he's this yeah. judge and they are rolling in it. I tell you, um, whereas most of my other relatives are sort of farmers or, you know, bricklayers yeah. or plumbers or, you know, hardworking kind of people. Um, yeah. yeah, so <laughs> uh, farmers, where was I going with that? Yeah, so if, when I walked around Zagreb, you know, capital city and everything, yeah. everyone has a vegetable garden in the back and even the units that have little bits growing here and there. Like everyone's got their veggies, their their um, kale, you know, and their, and their cabbage and their whatever, their spring onions. And it really inspired me when I came home to get back into my vegetable garden because that's how I sort of connect, you know, to the soil and to my dad because he was the big veggie yeah. gardener and – you know, so I think there's that bit of creation is definitely in me, but yeah. So Karen, it's two to eleven here on SFM. We yep. only have another couple of minutes. I want to thank you so much for coming on to Women's Voices, Women's Wisdom today, and sharing your wisdom and your story. I feel very privileged, and I cannot wait to read. What is the name of that book that you've been talking about? It's Not the new one. Home, and it's published by Daisy Lane Publishing, and it's also listed on the Refugee Council of Australia's webpage as a picture book resource. Oh, great. Did and you say it was called Home? Home. Home, okay. And it's on the New South Wales Premier's reading list this year. Is it? Well, that's fantastic. Mm. And and how long ago did you publish that book? Two years. Right. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. came well, out during COVID, which oh. has not helped the book. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, that's great. And when when do you got an ETA on when you might have your current Shell Harbour book um, available on the shelf? Um, I'm hoping by November for sure. I'm hoping. Yeah. Well, I can't and wait for that I'm, one. Yeah, I'm also working on another one 
about a little pink witch. Oh, cool. Um, and that's looking promising. And I'm working on another one that about a potato called Spud. <laughs> goes to Mars. Oh, very busy. I feel like we have to have you on again, Karen, just to talk about all your books. But I need to go to I'd the news. To. So much for that, Karen. And if anyone's interested to find out more about Karen and her wonderful books, you can find her at KarenHendricks.com. That's K-A-R-E-N-H-E-N-D-R-I-K-S. Thanks so much for listening to Women's Voices, Women's Wisdom with Kath.